All right, everybody, and welcome back to the Effort Over Everything podcast, formerly known as the Business of Fitness podcast. I'm your host, Jason Klepa, and on today's episode, we have, quote, the king of content, Savan Matosian. Now, Savan has been around the CrossFit space for longer than almost anybody, and I've seen him behind the camera for so many years. He's created a lot of amazing content, but I want to know a little bit more about him. So my goal for today was leaning in this idea of, Where do you come from? How do you find the camera? How do you get into film? And I think we did a great job diving into it. Super entertaining. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. We also dove into what he's getting into now that he's no longer working for us, CrossFit HQ, including three playing brothers, which is his new online program, and just being a father, an awesome father. We shine light into that towards the end of the episode. Before we dive into it, just want to remind you, if you are not hitting our effort week workouts, Every day this week, we've been putting out a different, you know, one of the most toughest workouts here at NC Fit, and I hope you've enjoyed them. If you haven't seen that, go to Instagram, check my link in bio or NC Fit's link in bio to get daily workouts that are super tough. Now, let's dive into an awesome episode with Savan. Have a great day, everybody. So it's uh, 7 a.m. here on the West Coast, and um, what's your morning normally like, man? You, you said you get up early. How, how early is early, and what's your, what's your morning schedule look like, Salon? This morning was amazing, Jason, because I turn on the shower, and I actually made sure there was soap in the shower before I got in, and there wasn't soap. You know, like the bar of soap had been whittled down to like a little dot. Yeah. And so it was like... I'm 49 years old and I, th- I can't, I can count on my hand the number of times I've actually realized that before I got in the shower, you know, that feeling when you get in the shower and what you want's not in there. So you're like calling for your wife or some shit. Oh, so before and you I even just, turned on the water, you, you found out about no, it. No, I, well, I turned it on and I looked in there. I'm like, there's no soap. Oh shit. Get a bar of soap. And I was like, so proud of myself. I'm like, shit, today's a success. I actually went in with everything I have. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Sorry. My bad. I just wanted to make sure the bedroom door was closed. So I'm not talking so loud that I wake the kids up. So I knew today was going to be an amazing day. When I start it with a, with a, a huge, you know, lifetime goal like that of, of actually noticing of, of the soap noticing is not the there before I get in. Yes. I mean, it's a yes, big accomplishment. Yes. And so um, it sounds like you spent a lot of time with your kids. And um, obviously I want, I want to talk a little bit more about like your programming and uh, you know, three playing brothers and like what that actually is. But I think yep. for people in the CrossFit space, they've seen you for years and years and years. The first time I met you, I think this is the first time I met you. I'm, 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 I'm almost positive. We were at um, CrossFit One World. And at yes, the time, you were doing a, ba- a, back, uh, uh, a background on um, the Every Second Counts documentary. And so the way I remember it is in 07, you had OPT who won the CrossFit Games. And then, you know, um, you guys created this documentary with, Dutch and John Welburn, others leading up to the OE games and the hype was real. Um, and I looked at you as like this celebrity figure who is creating something really special because at the time I was branded to sport. And then I saw you at CrossFit One World and uh, it was like, oh, that's Savant. And you were the creating content and then getting ready for the OE games. After that, we obviously got to know each other for the next boy, tech, decade plus. And so I guess where I want to kind of kick it off is in CrossFit, you wore a lot of hats and you got in really, really early. So I want to talk briefly about CrossFit, but really what I'm really interested in 
is that you didn't get into CrossFit until like what your mid thirties, give or take. And so you had 34. Yeah. You had a whole kind of career life, whatever you want to call it before that, that most people don't know about. And I'm genuinely curious. I saw one of your videos. You said that you were in like, if I'm not mistaken, 50 different countries and a hundred I've been in a hundred countries, a hundred countries. And Mm -hmm. I've traveled to a few countries but I can only imagine the life experiences that come from that exposure of depth. And so I want to, I want to dive into it. So I guess, what did you do for CrossFit? How was that time? And then boom, we'll, we'll go back to, we'll go back to your pre pre CrossFit days. So that w- that was the first time we met. I remember um, we were in there filming Pat Barber and I, I can't remember. I think he, the spirit of what I'm saying is going to be correct, but I don't know if it's right, but basically you did a workout and there, I think there was a friendly gentleman's bet that you couldn't beat Pat Barber's time. And then you did it and you beat Pat Barber's time. And Austin Bishop Bing was saying you were going to win the games. And I said to someone right there, I don't know if I said it to you or to Austin or someone, I go, fuck, I hope that guy doesn't ruin our movie. <laughs> because, because, you know, we thought we picked the five best guys and one of them were going to win and we were going to have this amazing climax. And then as we know, you did ruin the movie. You came and you won the final event and you passed up uh, Spieler who had an enormous, um, in that he didn't have an enormous lead on you, but he had enormous um, the way they the way they set up that event, he got to start before you, and it seemed impossible that you were going to catch him. And as we know, you did catch him. You know, while we're congratulations on that subject, to 2008 CrossFit Games champion for messing up your movie. Uh, while we're on the subject, <laughs> I, I, that that will never be repeated. And at that moment, that was a really cool way to finish an event. Obviously, I'm partial because I won the event, but even if I had incredible the, the way that they set it up, where every second counts really had this um, dramatic finish where the person who finished first won because the way they staggered the start, as you were saying. And, uh, but that could really never happen again, right? The, the way the CrossFit games are formatted now, it just, um, they're not all similar time domains. So it just doesn't really work. Right. That was, that was an incredible event. Um, I, that movie, um, I know this is pretty self-serving. I don't think people give that movie enough credit for the impact it had on CrossFit. I think that really set that movie and that games catapulted the games to the, or to not the games, I apologize, CrossFit to the next level. And there was a, there's a scene at the end of that movie where Greg Glassman puts his arm around you and he says, this is the product. And that has always stuck with me. And that is a very, um, that's a very profound and strong statement on how basically the whole business was built. Like, hey, these people walking around and like yesterday I went to the wharf in Santa Cruz, California, and I'm no, I'm no, I'm no Jason Kalipa, you know, Um, I'm no Pat Burke. I don't have this insane body, but um, I was the fittest person on the wharf and there were fucking 3000 people there, 4000 people. And and I, and I look different and, um, and I'm just a, a chill CrossFitter. So yeah, you, you were the product and you were the paragon you were the pinnacle of that product that year and it was and it was obvious by your performance and the way you look so hey, yeah well, that, that that's an that's an incredible that was an incredible movie i i, I when i watched the trailer i still movie. i still love it for sure the, the the movie the way that you guys built the suspense for anybody who hasn't seen it it's it's a great movie um yeah and it's not the shooting it's not yeah. the shooting style and the beautiful music and the beautiful shots that Hebrew and Marzen do. I mean, it's, it's definitely not in, um, like that. But if you're interested in a historic piece of film that will keep you engaged the whole time, man. Well, speaking of historical piece of film, I mean, you've created a lot of historical pieces of film 
for CrossFit. You've probably seen behind the curtain more than anybody else potentially um, from the CrossFit HQ style. I mean, I would be teaching seminars and you were there. I would be competing. You'd be there. You'd be everywhere and all, you know, everywhere and doing, doing a lot of behind the scenes type work. And so your, your, your history with CrossFit, you know, and then obviously uh, last, you know, year or so it's been a little bit different, but I mean, what are some kind of, I don't know, kind of really cool moments that maybe people don't know about along that journey because you saw so much in CrossFit in particular. I wonder if there's something that stands out to you. That's just like, aside from this, you know, like this is the product, but other moments that kind of, I don't know, just cool moments that maybe people don't know about. It was, it was weird. So it was, I, I started CrossFit because I, I met a guy and, and um, with Carrie Peterson, we were making a show for ESPN and there was some downtime and um, there was a security guard there. Um, and his name is uh, Travis Titus. It's a little bit of an understatement to call him a security guard. He's a um, super capable private security guy who has some super high end clientele, but he was there because he knew one of the other producers of the show. And we asked him what he did to work out. And he started, this is in 2005. And he started telling us what he did and we didn't believe him because like who does a hundred pull-ups in a workout and runs a mile. And he was telling us just crazy shit. Right. And so when later on, a few weeks later, we got home and my partner, Carrie Peterson at the time, my business partner said, Hey, I looked up CrossFit and they really do have crazy workouts like that. So we started doing CrossFit right then and there. And yeah, we were like, com. yeah, off of CrossFit.com. And we didn't, I didn't know, Carrie probably knew, um, he's a little more astute than me, but I didn't know that they were, you did them for time. So I used to just go to CrossFit.com and if it was Fran, I would go to the gym with you, Jason, you do your 11 thrusters. I do my 11 thrusters. We'd look at some girls, we'd drink some water at the fountain. We'd come back, we'd each do our 10 thrusters. And back then we didn't even know what the movements were. So you had to, every time there was a workout, you had to like, look up like, what's a thruster? What's a snatch? What's a clean? So I did it like that for like six months. And then I started wanting to do a muscle up and they, there wasn't any good video footage of it on the website. Remember, there was just that little tiny thumbnail of the guy at the park. It was like shot with 480p on a flip phone. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it looked, like, it section, looked like a flip book. Dude, the comment <laughs> section on .com was really the jam back then. She'd be like, male 205RX715. Remember? Yeah, man. That was a really, yeah. Those are some good times. Anyways. So I, um, so I sent them an email and said, hey um, – uh, or Carrie actually sent Lauren an email um, saying, Hey, um, seven and I will make videos for you. We flew out to Prescott. We gave him a budget of like for a year for like, I don't know, like $400,000 or something. We laid out this huge plan and they said, well, we don't, we're not going to pay you any money, but we'll give you a free L1. And so then I went to my L1, <laughs> I went to my, and it was just a, a mom good, and pop, right? Yeah. Good trip. Like we had, yeah. yeah. And we went to, we went to our L1 and we had our minds blown. We were just like, holy shit. And, and by blown, you know, I was 34 years old and I couldn't remember the last time I ran as fast as I could. And so when they have workouts where it's run 400 meters as fast as you can rest two minutes, do it again, four times to me, that blew my mind. Like, oh my God. Like, and then, you know, all the stuff in there where Greg would just say anyone, this is all free on the internet. Any 12 year old who can use the internet can learn this. Of course, all the L1 trainers were amazing. Um, he always says we didn't invent anything. These movements were part and parcel with your DNA. So all that stuff kind of blew me away. And so we, for the next year, I just started filming. And at that point it was, and, and these are things that are lost now. And I don't know. At that point, there were so many things that were 
like so new to me, even though I had traveled to a hundred countries, I'd filmed in a hundred countries, probably at that point or close to, I was probably like at 85 at that point. I had never been around so many military people. I'd never, I'd never met a Navy SEAL. I'd never been around police officers. I'd never been around firefighters. And you remember back then the base was first responders. If fitness was going to be the difference between your life and death, you did CrossFit. And so that was amazing. It was, a, and that took a long, that took several years for me to realize how that was affecting me. And then the fact that Greg Glassman defined fitness and all of the things that he wrote, it took me probably two or three years to realize what I had actually fallen into. Yeah. I, I, we were basically dealing with this guy, this sort of, I, I don't know, I don't know who to really compare him to. I always say that Greg is a mixture of Tupac Hemingway and Albert Einstein. Like he's great with words and, um, and he's really smart. And, and because in my analysis, not, not the truth, my analysis, because he grew up with polio as a little kid and he was so picked on and he was seen as someone you couldn't even get close to, you could catch polio and die. And he had that limp. He was horribly picked on as a kid. He had a really tough upbringing with his mother and father, like really tough. And so he had this enormous chip on his shoulder, right? Like this enormous, like you've seen the picture of Tupac holding up the two middle fingers. That's, uh, uh, we know Greg, that's how he walks around. I mean, he's just a fucking, he's just cantankerous and he loves to fight. He's, he, he and he has something to prove to the world. So, be, and I wasn't like that at all. I was, I was such a turn the other cheek guy. I wasn't a, um, I was just, you know, just get what I needed and, and move on. And so all of those things had a, um, were a huge adjustment for me, huge, huge adjustment for me to be in a company that was willing to fight for what it stood for to the death, basically. And, 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 and ironically, I never said that before, but ironically, that's kind of what happened. It fought, it fought to its death. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. So you and Carrie go down there and then you guys should start producing films for essentially kind of like like as a trade out more or less. And yeah, for free for a year, they just pay for our gas, our travel. They're very generous with food and, and all that stuff. But basically for, I was so obsessed and I lived at home with my mom or maybe I was living in my camper. I can't remember, but I basically just traveled for a year nonstop. The 15 years I worked at CrossFit, this is going to be, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but I worked 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. What does that mean? If someone called me, I jumped no matter what, if I got a call from Greg saying, be here at this time and it was 12 hours away, I would be there. Christmas, Easter, it didn't even matter. I was all, I was all in, you know, I don't think I, you know, I don't even, I'm not a vacation person, but I don't think I took a single vacation in 15 years. So okay. in the beginning, for I was the just first in. like year two, five, even maybe mm -hmm. that's easy to do. Right. Then all of a sudden, um, well, you had kids about maybe five years ago, give or take. Yeah, six years ago, I had yep. Avi. Yep. So you, but you were still a, a, a part of that, right? Where you're part of that dedicated crew. Like, hey, they say jump, you say how high. Um, yeah. I wonder, you know, that dedication that you had to the brand and to the business, it's really fascinating over the years and all the everything you contributed to the company. I'm curious, you said that you were living in maybe a camper or maybe with your mom. How many different places have you lived? Because you, you grew up in what? Was it Oakland you grew up in? I was born in Oakland, but I was raised in El Cerrito, California, which is just a, you know, just a city right next to Oakland. Two, two, yeah, two, two cities over, really close. There's just a street 
that goes, there's a street called San Pablo Avenue and it just cruises through all of these cities, you know, Albany, Berkeley, El Cerrito, mm-hmm. Oakland. So they're all kind of just one city. They're across the Bay from San Francisco. And um, so God, I could count all the houses I've lived in, in my whole life. I lived in El Cerrito. Then I lived in Walnut Creek. Then I lived in, I probably moved to Walnut Creek when I was like three then when I was five, I moved to a place called Pacheco, California. And oh, that's basically where I was like, raised. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm all, it's all California. I basically between Santa Barbara and San Francisco is where I lived my entire life, except for, you know, a month here. I did, I went to school at the University of London for six months, but, but home base has always been right here on the North American continent on the West coast. So as you, you know, kind of, so how'd you end up in a, how'd you end up in a, how'd you end up in a camp or your mom's place? right before you found CrossFit? Because I want to, there's so much backstory that led you to this point where you found CrossFit that ultimately changed your life, right? You were bought in on the mission. You're bought in on what, and you still are, by the way, you're, you're very dedicated to this idea of the profound impact of quote, the product, right? Um, but leading up to getting into that vertical, I mean, what kind of led you to getting to the point where you meet this bouncer or uh, security person who then introduces you to CrossFit. What, what are all the kind of steps, right? What's your background before that? When I was 16, my, but I, I usually just tell the story. My mom kicked me out of the house, I, but I, now it's getting a little fuzzy. But when I was 16, I remember I was talking my mom was angry at me for something I did. She was at work. My mom's an attorney and I was uh, at home alone. And she said, Hey, when I get home, don't be there. So at that point, I remember moving into my friend Eddie Fryer's house for two weeks. And then from there, my, my parents were divorced. I moved into an apartment in Berkeley, California, that was a, um, it was, it was four units facing four units and they were all, they were all crack homes. And basically my bad dad bought these two fourplexes because someone had defaulted on the loan and the bank repoed them. And my dad got these two fourplexes for like $50,000 each. And every single person there in those, in those eight units hadn't paid their rent. And the highest rent there was $25 a month. And that was also, so I moved and when I lived in Pacheco, California with my mom, I lived in a very, very, very tough all white neighborhood and like with hell's angels and tons of meth dealing and tons of motorcycles. And there was fighting every day on the streets. And then from there, I moved into an all black neighborhood. This was, it was, it, it just excluded. There were no other white people there. There were tons of prostitutes there. There were the guys with the fedoras and the feathers with the Rottweilers out in front of my apartment. And so I started living there. And what I would do is at night, I would, I was 16, I would walk around on the streets there and I started making a ton of friends. And my friends were all like in their, I think probably the youngest guy ever remembers like 35 years old. So I would hang out with these guys who were like 35 to 70. Yeah. They were like 35 to 70. They were all um, black guys and they had all had a, a, a checkered past. You know, I think half, half the guys had either been in Soledad or San Quentin. And so for two years, I did that a couple nights a week. I would walk with them up to the liquor store. I'd give them 20 bucks. We'd get like a guy would go in. We would get Get some type of drink. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You get, you could get 20 forties. Yeah. (laughs) And then, and then, and then we would just, and then we would just hang out. And, um, and at that point I, I, I got to, and there were tons of homeless people, not, not like today, I should say nothing like today, but, and I just, 
cut my chops on the teeth on the streets there. And I, at that point, I, it's funny, I, I didn't think about this now until I'm saying that I was probably a documentary filmmaker there then I just didn't own a camera. But I was just so curious, right? This was a total foreign um, world to me. And for some reason, I didn't have any fear. And for some reason, my parents didn't stop me. My dad didn't stop me. No one said anything to me. So that, and, and I basically did that for, you know, that was my life for like two, three, four years. Um, drive home from school, which in my school was like 20 miles away. I had no friends in my neighborhood and I would just hang out with these guys. That was hear their like stories. A, what sophomore, junior, senior, in sophomore, junior, senior, and then probably my first year of city college. Okay. So I, I learned, I learned the streets pretty good at that point. I learned the streets pretty good at that point. So flash forward to now um, I'm in college. I've been an undergrad for seven years. I'm going to the university of Santa Barbara and my mom's tired of pain and she's done with undergrad my shit, for right? seven years. Yeah. Seven years. Wow. And so, so <laughs> yeah. looking back on that, so now you were in community college and then you went from community college to where'd you go next? University, right? university of London for six months. And then I, and then to UC Santa Barbara for three years. So why the university? I mean, how do you go from community college to university of London? Why that? And um, my mom made me, your mom, it was made crazy. You? Yeah. It was, it was one of those things, you know, when the, your mom's giving you something, you know, when your parents, I mean, I don't know what an example is, but imagine your parents buying you a brand new car, but it's not the car you wanted. So you throw a temper tantrum, like a little brat. My yeah. mom basically told me, Hey, you have to go. I want you to do this program at the university of London for six months. And basically she told me I had to do it. And I was like, so fucking pissed. Here's my mom willing to pay for everything. Send me to London right. as a young man. And it ended up being just an amazing six months, of course. Right. And while I was over there, I was accepted to the university of Santa Barbara. And so I went to the university of Santa Barbara. So how long were you at the university? Of Santa so then you did like a couple of years and then you ended up four more years at university because seven years in college is pretty, pretty decently long time. Right. Oh, it <laughs> was, it was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> Man, it, it was. So, so were you in good. a film then? Were you studying film at? Uh... No. So, so I got accepted to the University of Santa Barbara for statistics. I failed out. I then transferred to Black Studies, and um, and I was in a Sociology one fifty one class. It was a uh, and and it was like probably like it was a huge class, and. I can't wish I could remember the name of it, but it was basically the first entry class for black studies. And at that point I'd read a ton of books because I lived in a neighborhood I, and I was the only white guy for so many years. I read everything I could about black leaders from the seals to Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King, not the seals, um, Bobby seal and the um, black Panthers. Yeah. Um, like all the history of South Africa. I mean, I just was just consuming anything I could get. And I always had a book with me about that. And I always had like a Malcolm X shirt. I like I wore a Malcolm X shirt like five days a week, right? I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. That, that really affected and changed my life. And so I wanted to be, I figured, okay, I'll be a black studies major. And I was in the class. And at that time I was in the class, I was living in a house where I was running a homeless shelter out in the backyard. Yep. At the time, I don't, I, I say that in hindsight to describe it to you, but I'm not thinking to myself, I run a homeless shelter. I just let any homeless people they want stay in my backyard. And so at, at school, so um, there were probably, I made a list of every single person who lived there over one year period. It was like 144 people and their dogs and their cats and their birds. And they were basically all 
I'd say 99% of them were drug addicts, right? So this is while you're in but, college, you're kind of managing and, this house for lack of a better term. And yes. there's people that are just rotating in and out. Yes. Tents set up my, in my driveway, in my backyard. And, oh. and I would always do these huge dinners. I would always cook them these huge dinners. Um, and so um, there, there was a, there was, there were two guys, there was a, there were, there was a guy there, Rastafarian guy named Carms and, um, and then there was this other guy, we called him skinhead Dave. He had a swastika tattooed on him and hate tattooed on one hand and then like kill on the other knuckles. And when we would be in town, they didn't talk to each other. But when we were back at the house, they were like best buds, right? Like I would see them sleeping on opposing couches. They would always eat together. They would hang. So I remember saying, in my in my associate someone said someone said something like well, i was in this sociology class and i can't remember what the question was but i raised my hand and i said a racism is a luxury and someone goes and of course and, ha- and people got really fucking pissed people started like yelling at me people started wanting to fight me but i knew racism was a luxury because when shelter and food when you don't have shelter and food and you have to come together with someone you you will stop believing the lie that is race well, you, yeah, you, I mean, will, you believe the truth that's called survival. Yeah. Well, yeah, you saw survival is more important than, than race. Yeah. In the hierarchy, like breathing is more important than fucking, you know, like <laughs> there's a hierarchy. Right. And, and, um, so at that point I realized, I, and then I took a few more black studies classes and I realized it was all bullshit. There was no real life experience there. They were feeding kids shit. If people really wanted to know black history, they could, they should, they should dig in themselves. Right. And, 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 and learn about black culture by, by, um, indoctrinating themselves, move to a neighborhood that's all black. Like, do you really want to know, or do you want the degree? So from there, I be, I was like been in college a long time now. Now I'm thinking, shit, what will I do to graduate? And so I look, I lined up all the classes that I'd taken and then looked at all the prerequisites for all the other majors. Like what would be the easiest way to get a college? And it was film studies. I was like, Oh shit. All I have to do is take these amount of classes and I can get my degree. Like I didn't care. I wasn't interested in film at right, all. You're just, try- you're just trying to get out. Just trying to get out. So, so I didn't get out. I didn't get out. My mom stopped paying for my school before I, was able to, to jump through all the hoops. I got very close. I, the, oh, the last thing I needed was Spanish three. I, that's the only class I need to get my degree. Can you believe that? From, and I tried from to, Santa Barbara, right? Yeah. And yeah. I took Spanish three, three times throughout my life. I took it in high school. I took it at city college and I took it at UC and I didn't pass it. I didn't pass any of the times. So I was too busy. Are you technically, is the clock still ticking for you? You have one more class to get your degree? One class. Yeah. Is that amazing oh, man and, and it's too late now right there's no way you can go back and try to get another i have classroom. no i have no interest i have no interest it did haunt me for a long time but now i have no interest um but um there were there was there were a couple film classes that really like exp- the, the head of the film studies department at the time was a guy named uh edward brannigan and he taught a class called film theory and that class and it's basically just like how does how does watching images affect the brain right and that had a huge profound impact on me just understanding some of the mechanisms of the brain that i had never thought of before on my own so so then basically when my mom stopped um paying for my college and paying for my rent my rent ran out and there i was 
I just, I remember just walking out of my house and it was just me and my dog. And I'm just like, holy shit. This I'm is homeless. seven years into college, one class left, mom stops paying. And now you're just like, okay, you kind of had- I'm just had, homeless, yeah. <laughs> and you had no, wow, okay. All right, so what no, happened? No next? job, no, no yeah. job, nothing. Uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you an interesting story. So yeah. um, when- about six months, about six months before I became homeless, I was in my living room at my house with my buddies. All my friends were all living together, you know, college life. And we're all in the living room and we're all playing. I can't remember some sort of Nintendo game. And a guy walks into our living room, Rastafarian guy. I mentioned him earlier, the guy Carms, the guy yeah. who ended up living in my backyard. So he walks into our house. He's like, and there were tons of like guys like this all over my college town, right? Just like older guys who'd been there for 20 years. And like, you saw them at the free box or like they would be drunk playing their guitar in front of the market, just shit like that. So it's just homeless guys. So this guy walks into our house, our front door is open. It's a, it's a cool party college house. And he walks in and he's like talking to us and he's being loud and he's clearly super drunk and super stoned. And after like 10 or 15 minutes of him, just we're like, Hey dude, we don't even know you get the fuck out of here. And we fucking just shoo him out of our house and we're, we're assholes to him. But, 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 but at the time with our mindset, justifiably, so just having a random dude walk into your house, you know, who smells like alcohol and BO with massive dreadlocks, you know, you, after 10 or 15 minutes, you got to give him the boot. So the day that my rent was flash forward now six months and my dog and I leave the house. It's summertime. All my friends there leave. I have no resources. I don't know where I'm going to sleep that night. And I walk into the center of this park and I sit down and I'm just like my, I'm just like, Holy shit. This is it. I'm right, homeless. You're homeless. I got, right. Yeah. Yeah. I got nothing. I have no job. I don't have, I don't have a car. This is pre cell phone. There's no cell phones. There's no internet. There's no like, you know, it's just, and I'm sitting there. And I, um, with my dog and I start thinking, holy shit, I got to feed my dog today. That should be my number one priority. I have no money, no food. What am I going to do to feed my dog? And I have this big, great Dane named Caesar. And, um, f through the park, I see walking towards me is that guy I'd kicked out of my house. Oh, really? And he's, and he's carrying a big black garbage bag. And as he walks as he gets up to me, he goes, Hey man, what's up? I go, Hey. And he goes, I'm Carms. I go, hey, I'm Sevon. And he goes, do you want one of these? And he opens up this black garbage bag and inside of it's like, I don't know, 15 or 20 rotisserie chickens. You know, the kind like you get at Whole yeah, Foods. Yeah, like Whole Foods and or Costco or whatever. Yeah. yeah. He goes, do you want one of these? And I said, yeah, I'd love one of those. Thank you. And he had gotten them from behind a supermarket that had like thrown them all out, right? They were like day old or whatever. And at that point, and, and, and I skipped a lot, but at that point, I knew I was like, holy shit, if I'm open to it, the world will conspire to support me, but I really have to be open to it. It will give me everything I need and everything I want, but I better be fucking open to it. And the next two years were probably the next two years were probably the best two years of my life. And it's funny because I was, I was thinking about this today in every interview where I've mentioned that I was homeless before. It's interesting because I say that word and people have this impression because people don't know what it means to be homeless. The vast, vast majority of people who are homeless are drug addicts. They were either drug and, and that's why they're in that situation. And people will say, well, they're mentally ill. I never met anyone while I was homeless. All of my peers were mentally ill because they were drug addicts. I mean, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? There was no way yeah. to. There's no way to make a dis distinction between the two, but to call myself homeless was, a, is really just for dramatic effect because 
And this was for two years. You were quote the homeless or, or but yeah, you're saying yeah. dramatic effect because, because were you or, or not really? No, I was homeless. I just wasn't a, I, I wasn't a, um, I wasn't a drug addict. And so I was in a, uh, I was, there's probably a different word for it. You know, I could have said I was an ascetic. I could have said I was just someone who was just trying to give up everything I own and walk the earth. I could have said I was a religious man. I could have said I was a spiritual man. I could have, there's probably another word for it um, that, that better describes it, but but you um, didn't have a home and you were out on the street. I did. For two years. I didn't. I didn't have a home. Right. Right. And, and did you transport between? But, well, but when, yeah, I basically just stayed in this town the vast majority of my time. And I just built a schedule for my, so I decided, okay, I have all of this free time. What am I going to do? What have I, okay. I, my penmanship is horrible. I'm going to work on my penmanship every day. I like to play Frisbee. I'm going to play Frisbee every day. I like girls. I'm going to meet girls every day. I just basically, was extremely disciplined and had a ton of structure and just worked on myself constantly read every day, play chess every day, go to the beach and swim in the ocean every day. And I just made this just amazing lifestyle. And, and there, and there were just a ton of life lessons there. If you yeah. don't need anything, people will gravitate towards you. The second you need something from someone, they'll push you away. So like, I would have never said to you, if I saw you and we met, just met at the coffee shop and you were smoking cigarettes and I wanted one, I would never say, Hey, Jason, could I have a cigarette? Right. I would wait until you, I would wait until you offered me one. I would never tax anyone's supply. If someone said, Hey, oh. you want to sleep in my backyard? I would say, sure. Or you want to sleep in my house or whatever? I'd say, sure. And then I would be out in the morning before they you woke up. You never try to take advantage of the- No. Yeah. yeah. Always leave. Or like, I, I would be like, um, I would be at someone's house and they, they were, they would be having a party and everyone would pass out. I would do all their dishes. Then I would do all their dishes. I'd clean and they'd be all be drinking and getting wasted. They were college kids, but I'd be on the floor drawing, you know, you know, usually with, in, fortunately for me, usually with like a couple of girls who weren't drinking also, you know what I mean? And we'd be talking about life and, you know, people are at that age where they want to know shit. Right. And I, yeah, well, I knew well, you shit. saw some stuff, right? So you were on the streets for two years. So yeah. what kind of like prompted you then to, <laughs> go from, you know, I mean, to see at this point, like your background is very unique, right? I mean, I, I think you realize it probably looking back on it, that you lived right. in, you know, different styles and neighborhoods with different types of people. You then yep. ran quote a homeless shelter ish, right? More or less. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Then you get kicked out of your place. You're now homeless, but you almost like a, I don't want to say you're choosing to, but you're, you're embracing the lifestyle for lack of a better yeah. term. I'm just, I'm just in a boat. And I'm not putting my oars in the water and I'm letting it take me where I want to go. And so at what point go. did you say, Hey, I'm kind of done coasting uh, for lack of a better term. And yeah. I want to go do something new. I want to do something. What, what kind of sparked that in you? Also, I, I, I would always walk by this home for disabled adults. And by the way, and at this time I, I had lost my shoes and I hadn't worn shoes in two years. So, and I, and I got all my clothes out of a free box and I was just, I was just so, I was so, my life was so fucking simple. It was, you it was had no amazing. money in your pocket, no credit card, no cell phone, nothing. So, so you know what? I would draw pictures and I would sell pictures. So I'd be able to get money like that. Um, how else would I get money? I think that was the primary way I got money. I always, I always seemed to have a few dollars. People were really, really nice to me like exceedingly nice. Like the college kids there in that town, like really, there were probably like 
20 to 50 college kids that had really embraced me. Like Sevon, come to the beach with us. Sevon, let's play Frisbee. Sevon, come stay night at my house. Sevon, this is my sister. Like, I mean, people were like fucking awesome to me because I was just chill. I just sat there and just drew and, 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 and I, and I had the pretty gregarious personality that I still have today. I was still that same person, but I was, um, I didn't, I was nothing. Anyway, so I would always walk by this home for disabled adults. And I thought, you know, I, I have so much fucking love to give. I've like, there's nothing, I have no interest in myself, like outside of just these few disciplines that I'm, I'm practicing. I should get, I should go in there and, and, and help these people. So I walk in there, I get a job application, pay $7 an hour. I apply for the job. I knew my wife at the time, Haley, who's my wife now. I knew her. She was, she, she was one of the houses that I would hang out at sometimes. And I told, you know, the, the girls who live there, I said, Oh yeah, I'm going to apply for a job at that home for disabled adults. I think I could do a lot of good there. And she then, it was pretty funny. We talked about this all the time. She said, Hey, I'm going to, do you mind if I apply there? And I don't remember exactly how she said it, but she was basically saying like, if I apply there and you apply there, I'm going to get the job. Not you, you homeless barefoot fuck, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, but, but she said it really gently and we both applied there. I did my job interview barefoot and we both got the job and the, that job had a night shift. So there was always someone there. There were eight disabled adults who lived there and severely, severely disabled. It was kind of an experimental program the state was doing to see if the, how, if they could live on their own, it was called supportive living as opposed to um, like basically keeping them in a jail um, where they're ruled by the, by the caretakers. And so we both got the job there and, and I just started working a shitload. Like a, a slow week would be, be 40 hours for me. A busy week would be 80, 90 hours because sometimes I would just work these 24 hour shifts because I could just work the night shift and just sleep. And I started because I didn't need any money. I just started saving a shit ton of money, just a shit ton of money, like $7,000 in the bank. Like I was filthy. Imagine yeah, that. And, and I was at that filthy. point you felt rich. No overhead. Wealthy, yeah. Whatever. yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I have a bank account with seven grand in there and it's just building right by a few hundred dollars a week. I'm like, holy crap, this is nuts. And, um, at one point I just, I decided, I don't know. I, 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 from when I was a little kid, I always wanted a video camera. I just remember thinking video cameras were the coolest. They were so cool. I always wanted a video camera. So I, um, went to circuit city. Do you remember, you remember circuit city? Yeah, right, of Jason? course I remember circuit city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I went to circuit city and I bought a Zo Sony video camera, the one, and it took these uh, cassette tapes and it was probably the most advanced thing they had at the time. It was like $1,800 and I bought it. Which is a lot of money I, back woo, then. Yeah. Crazy money. Great. And it was one third of all my wealth, right? I probably had like six, six or $7,000 in the bank. So I bought it and then I bought all the tapes and I bought some extra batteries and I started just filming just everything, anything like, so like in people's houses, the disabled adults, I would get up, you know, obviously when you're homeless, I get up like at five in the morning and just walk the streets and just film birds and trees. And I just always carried this camera with me, this big honking, you know, video camera. So you're still and, homeless. You're kind of homeless. You're kind of not because you can stay the night at the, sh at the, at the home or, yeah. or would you just be in a tent on the street? Is that what the, no, those you know, the truth is I, ne I never, no, I never really slept in a tent. The truth is I, I would, I would either, it was Santa Barbara, California. So it's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, it's like, it might be the nicest place on the planet in terms of weather. And, and, um, you know, I think, I don't know what it is now, but it's gotta be up there for most billionaires per capita in the world. And, you know, Oprah's there. And so there's an abundance there. There's an abundance, meaning I could go into any supermarket dumpster and just pull out salami and cheese. You know what I mean? Like there's an abundance. And so, um, and I spent the night at a, and I had a lot of girlfriends at the time. So I would, it would be so easy for me just to just sleep at a girl's house. Okay. All right. So, so you got your camera, you're sleeping at different houses girl. Yeah. So, so it was a good life. It was an amazing life. And, um, so I, and I did have a rule never to sleep at guys' houses. So if you and I were friends and we were playing Frisbee all day and you're like, Hey, you need a place to stay. You can crash at my house. I didn't do that. I don't know why I had that rule. I remember I had a distinct reason why I would never sleep at a guy's house. I think it was because I wanted to make sure that there wasn't a, a, like a, a, I didn't want to feel like I owed anything to my guy friends. I didn't, I just wanted it to still be like them be excited to see me every morning at the coffee shop or to party with me or to play Frisbee with me or whatever. So that was one rule I had. I never, I never would take any guy up on an offer. Like, Hey, if there was like, you know, a bunch of college guys and they're like, Oh, you can yeah. sleep on a couch. I wouldn't, I would go sleep somewhere else, but I never slept in a tent. I never, you didn't have to do that in Santa Barbara. The, the weather's too nice. There's too much like, there's, there's opportunities there's, to sleep elsewhere. Yeah. And, too many resources. Yeah. I would sleep outside first, just like under a tree. So you have this camera now and you're kind of like documenting life. Is that what's basically going on? Yeah. I'm just, I'm not, I don't even know what I'm doing, but I'm just like excited because I have a piece of electronic equipment. You know what I mean? Like a little kid who gets like a, a remote control car and it's shitty, but he's so fucking pumped. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. So then I see, I, I start wanting to edit the footage I'm getting and I know nothing about editing. And I re- there's these places called public, a- public, there are these things called public access channels and every community has one. And I don't know if they're still around, but I believe they're still around. And it's usually some obscure channel and it's um, cable networks are forced to provide each community with one of these public access centers. And they're a building. And usually all the shows that run out of these public access um, channels are really weird shows. They're all the really weird eccentric people. So it would be someone who wants to host a show naked. It would be someone just reading Bible scripture for 30 minutes. It would be someone talking about how, um, I don't know the contrails and about how the aliens are coming to get us. You know, it was always these really weird shows Yeah, and they had all the camera equipment there and all the editing equipment there and you could sign in. It was like a library, but for making TV shows. So I went in there to look at, use their editing equipment and there was the people there were a little too weird for me. And the equipment was just, there was the learning curve that I wasn't willing to, to take for the amount of time I'd have to spend with these people and learn it. So then all of a sudden I hear that Apple's going to come out with a laptop and that you can edit movies on and they're going to release a software called Final Cut Pro all on the same day. So I come up with this harebrained idea that I'm going to buy a, like a, some sort of camper truck thing, like a Toyota, like one of those Toyota things that looks like a snail where you could like live in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I'm and the day that computer comes out, I'm going to buy that computer and I'm going to buy that software. And so I spent every cent I had on like a 1977 Chinook, a brand new laptop and that software. The whole thing was probably like 10 grand for all three of them. The computer was so expensive. I, mean, I would say it was like probably $3,500. And I want to say the software was like $2,100. And then I used the rest of the money to buy this dilapidated motorhome. And I, um, 
took me, it took me two weeks to load all 10 DVDs into that computer because there were so many crashes and it was like, there was no internet. I was two hours a day. I was um, in the home for disabled adults on their phone while people are screaming, yelling, like trying to figure out how to load this software. And after two weeks, I had this, the DVDs loaded. I would plug the cigarette lighter into my, uh, uh, the computer into my cigarette lighter in the car. And I just taught myself how to edit. And I just filmed and edited every single day. So I would work all day and then edit all night. Wow. And, Do you have any of those videos yeah. still? Yes, 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 yes. There, yes. Wow. And there, so, you started- I, so, so I made yeah. a TV show in Isla Vista called IVTV. It was 20 episodes and it was crazy. And there, some of them are on YouTube and they are, they are absolutely wild. We were so ahead of our time. I would guess that I was probably one of the first people outside of beta testing in Hollywood that ever made a TV show using Final Cut Pro on a laptop. And we made 20 episodes. They were the most popular shows in the history of Santa Barbara, California, in terms of ratings, better than the Super Bowl, better than like the Oscars, because it was about this college town. And so when we would play the show at night, um, like every once a month, the whole entire town, this was the most densely populated town west of the Mississippi, and the entire town would go silent because everyone would be inside watching the show. And the show was a trip. And it was was like the 90s or 80s? Was this? No, no, this is in 2000. This is uh, this is in early 2000s. Okay, early 2000s. So you're, you yeah. start the show. Whenever. And so did you start making money off the show? We, so my, um, my, my buddy and I, so I, my, what I did, the show was basically, I gave my buddy a microphone and I said, hey, let's just walk around the streets and we'll come up with questions and ask people and then we'll assemble them together and make a 24 minute show. But when you walk around a college town and you do that, the craziest shit happens. I mean, just like you have to see the show. The show is absolutely wild. And um twice we made the color of the the cover of the California section in the LA Times because of controversy we created. And so um, <laughs> getting past the college things. Yeah. You, you then start like producing like high quality video I mean, I bet. So I just I'll make anything yeah. anyone want. Yeah. I basically, I start. So I, I'll, I would, I walked into a hair salon. I'm like, Hey, do you guys want me to make you a commercial for TV? And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And you know, at the time, no, no one did. And there were no guys with now every Tom, Dick and Harry has a video camera and editing software. There was no one around to do it. So they would say, how much is it? And I would be like, I don't know, 500 bucks and a free haircut. They'd be like, really? I'd be like, yeah. And then I film them a commercial and then I would give it to them or um, we asked for, we would ask people like, um, for our, for our IV TV show, we would ask people for sponsorship. So the pizza, the sponsorship would be, um, pizza for everyone, free pizza, not even stuff for ourselves, free pizza for everyone who watches the show in the pizza place or a free beer or something. And then, and then finally, like I started getting more and more ambitious. I made a, I made a, I started filming the, the adults at the disabled home. I made a move. That was my first feature length documentary I made. It's called our house. It won um, 30 film festival awards. It did incredibly well. Um, there was a year, there was a, a, a movie that won the Academy Award that year called Spellbound. And twice we, we crossed paths with it at film festivals and we beat it both times. Um, then someone had me make uh, three half hour shows for ESPN. They never paid me for that. Uh, <laughs> but those re-aired more than 300 times. Um, they were arm wrestling shows. And yeah. so it was just, it was just, Going back to your original question, when did you decide to not be homeless? I never did decide to not be homeless. Just shit just started happening. Do you know what I mean? Just like, it's kind of just like, 
how I ended up with kids or my whole life. It's more just like Forrest Gump. I'm just, you know, I just have good habits or I have a, I don't even know if they're good. I have habits and I have discipline and I have obsession. And so because of that, um, things are going to happen, right? I don't have goals. I didn't decide, decide, Hey, all of a sudden I want to live in a house. I actually thought that I would be homeless in Isla Vista forever living the dream. I act for years. I thought that. And even now today I have a, a, a abundance of wealth and I don't, I don't, um, it still seems plausible to me. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, um, being homeless was scary, right? Like the first week, like, oh shit, this is really fucking weird, right? You're kind of like some of the things you think you need, you, you have to come to terms with, you don't need them. Now, the only thing I care, the only, my only attachment now is my kids, my kids and my wife. And, and, and even though I love my wife more than I love myself, really, I love my wife most. I used to love her for myself. Now I love her for my kids. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. No, I, I, Hey, I, and and so, yeah. So I, so I just kind of just, I like, I just kind of, I just chug along. I just, you know, get up early and I just keep giving things up. You know, you try, you just try, I just try to make myself better and then life just gets better around me. So, you know, try to drink less, try to quit drinking, try to drink less coffee, try to eat healthier, try to stand straight when you talk to people, try to swear less, try to be, you know, um, do random acts, of, just, just the, discipline. The just swear less has your... been tough for you, huh? Uh, very, 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 <laughs> very. My mom still rides me. So how many children? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm still swearing a lot because it'll be easy to finally give up and I'm just yeah. holding on to it. So I have something to give up later. That's easy. So how many children? How many have? what? Children. I have three. Yeah. So you have three I have th- children. I have three kids. And mm-hmm. so it's, you have the three. And, yeah, go ahead. So the kid, the kids are the same way at, th- at, my wife and I, so my wife met me when I was homeless. We, we ended I courted her for five years before she would, she made the decision to be like, okay, I guess it's okay to date a homeless guy. And then finally, and we worked at that job together for five years, that home, that home for disabled adults. And by the way, in the five years I worked there, I started at $7 an hour, low man on the totem pole barefoot. And when I left five years later, I was making $21 an hour and I had 17 people working for me. And, and my wife was second in command. And then, and then the last like month I lived there, she actually got promoted over me Oh, and, and, uh, but none of that was my intention. Just go there and just do hard work. Just go there and do hard work, be committed, always be available. Don't compartmentalize my life. Just have, you know, just go there and just do hard work and always be available. If you were my boss and you said, Sevon, it's Christmas and, um, we don't have anyone to work. I would never say, Oh, but I had plans. I would just say, yes, yes, Jason, I'll be there. That's it. And even if I was so mad at you, I would say that because I knew that that's who I wanted it to be. Right. The same way with like, you don't want to work out, but you're always stoked when you're done. Right. And I was always stoked that I was the guy that worked Christmas and I was the go-to guy. So, um, so the same thing. So my wife and I knew each other for all this time and we knew we were never going to get married and we, we knew we were never going to have kids. Like we thought, we thought marriage was just people who did who were tools and followed the protocol of the man. And we thought that there's no point in having kids. There's plenty enough kids. And then we were around, we hung around my friend, Chad Wolf had a kid and Greg Glassman had a kid. And at the time, Greg Glassman had a kid with Maggie. We were living with them. 
Haley and I both lived with Greg in San Diego, California. And he met Maggie and they had a kid. So we were in this house where this woman's breastfeeding and that, and then, and then the, the third piece was a, uh, a friend of ours, um, Dr. Will Wright, his wife, Paige Wright said to my wife, I wasn't there when she said it, but she said, if you don't have kids, you might regret it. If you do have kids, you won't regret it. And then my, that was it. My wife's like, I want one. I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever. And then we just had Avi. And now it's been like, and now everything's changed again. Yeah. Oh, crazy, crazy. And that's why I do podcasts at seven in the morning. Cause I don't want to miss a second with my kids. And so I want to like get all my shit out of the way in the morning so that I can just like get my kids dressed and drive them around and, and play with them. And that's like, that's really all I want to do. Well, you seem fully invested in your kids. I mean, I, I, I could appreciate the dedication you have, right? They're training in the garage. You're having fun. You're really expressing all the skateboarding, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it seems like you're all in on that. Right. And it's really yes. fun to watch because I mean, you talk about like this evolution, right? You talk about from going from, I mean, your background is just really unique and now you can bring those life experiences to your kids. And I imagine like what type of things are you trying to instill in them? See your, your viewpoint is very unique. Um, again, from living different places, traveling different places, making videos about stuff. You probably learn a lot from people because you're consuming it through the lens of a camera, but you're still learning it. And so I imagine when you have these three kids, you probably feel some type of responsibility in instilling certain values and characteristics. I mean, how are you even starting that at such a young age? We, we live in really trippy times. It, it, it's, it's changed over probably the last six months to a year, but well, it's, it's, it's always changing. At first I was just thinking to myself, okay, I want my kids to be able to do, to, to be able to take care of themselves. So what does that mean? That means to have a, a, enough education and enough discipline and enough health and work ethic that, that whatever happens, if they became homeless like me, it doesn't matter. They can just, they have discipline and work ethic and they can get through it. And then more and more, I started also realizing that I wanted them to be really, really good mates. I wanted them to be not attracted, not attractive not attra- not attractive to the opposite sex um, or, or if they decide to be gay to the same sex, I wanted them to be eminently capable, fight, feed, clothe. Like yep. I, I want them to, to be able to do love, listen, like um, I, I want to – I, I want my kids to be, I want my kids to be probably kind of the same way my mom wanted me to be, but even more, meaning I want my kids to hold the door open for people. I want them to be able to have a calmness about them that, um, that, uh, threats fear them. They don't fear threats. Um, I want them to be really good at math because I think math is, or the opportunity to be really good at math because I think people in this world, successful ones a lot of them are really really good at math they're capable meaning they can pivot to a lot of different jobs and i think it helps them think clearly i want them to have mastery over the english language because i do believe um that there's this Taoist saying naming is the origin of all particular things and i do believe language is basically we're all sorcerers here and, and i use that term jokingly but not jokingly because whatever we say 
influences reality more than we can ever imagine. I, I'm seeing, and, and I did, I, I always knew that. Well, not always, but since my twenties, I've known that, but now I'm seeing a whole half, half of, I don't know how much it is. Bear with me here. Maybe this isn't true, but I'm seeing 50% of the United States public under a spell right now and believing stuff because of the manipulation by words. And it's, it's, I do not want my kids to, I want my kids to have the horsepower, the mental horsepower to be able to see the truth if they want to see the truth, if they want to. So I just want them to be crazy capable. I want them to be good mates. I think if I just keep along that path of wanting them to be good mates, what would I want in a girlfriend? What would I want in a boyfriend? What do I like? Why do I like hanging out with Jason Kalipa? Well, because when we go out, he doesn't start fights, but if a fight does break out, he can handle his business. I like Jason because if someone's pulling into a parking spot at the same time he is, he pulls away because he knows that makes the world a better place. And he doesn't mind walking a block. Like I, I like, I want my kids to be that person. Like, and those are the skills I'm trying to teach them to just be, be, be capable and, and, and contribute. Yeah. I see Mike. I thought legacy was stupid. Jason, my whole life, whenever someone said that I'd be like, God, what an arrogant fuck. Someone wants legacy. Who gives a fuck you die. But in the last probably two months, I've realized that, yeah, I, I guess I do have legacy. And, and my legacy is my kids. I want how they treat people, how they act, what they, yes. Yes. You you have such a, such a critical component to how they, how they are. Right. And I I see it with my own kids, right. Seven and 10. Right. It's the way they treat others, the way they're compassionate. I mean, all those things are quote, like to your point, the legacy of how you kind of raise them. It's a lot of responsibility and it it does get stressful at times because you want to make sure you're guiding them the right way. And, you know, for us, it's like, we just have good open conversations on a regular basis on how are we doing? What are we seeing? How can we improve? We make these micro adjustments along the way, but like, it's so funny how we go through life. And like when we're 10, 15, let's just say 18 years old, you think, you know, a lot, then you get to be like 30. You realize you really didn't know much when you're 18. And then as you get older and more mature, you realize like life is pretty complex. And the people who have spent a lot of years learning from others, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And, um, you know, the older I get, the more mature I get. I want to be able to share that with my kids as much as possible, help them with some lessons that we've learned along the road because man, right. there's a lot to learn. You know what I mean? Oh. What, one, one of the, it's, it's, I was just, as you were talking, I thought about this. I, I wonder if we have this in common from being in the CrossFit community. If one of my kids does something cool, like, so let's like yesterday they were, they had these rubber bouncing balls and they were trying to throw them on the slanted part of the roof. And then they rolled down. And one of my boys was having more difficult than the other. And when he finally got it, the other two boys looked at him and they're like, Oh my God, you did it. And they like celebrated. I'm like, Oh, he probably learned that from watching us do CrossFit. Yeah. Cause yeah, when someone does something, yeah. Celebrating the win. And it's like, the, like you were just saying, those are the things they learn from us. Right celebrate the win or it was so funny um a girl got a a, a girl who in the two years i've been doing jujitsu taking my kid there to do jujitsu not me personally um there's this girl there she's just she never she she's she just struggles she just struggles she doesn't really want to be there and she did a class and she took down another girl who was significantly better than her and um after class avi walks up to her he's six and he goes hey you know, that was amazing. I want to give you a dollar because that was so good. Because sometimes, because, <laughs> because sometimes they'll be like, Hey, if I, if I do a workout, can I get a dollar? I'm like, hell yeah. But I just thought it was funny that now he wants to give her a dollar. He saw her do something good. So he wants to, he wants to pay it forward and give her a dollar. And I'm we like, should, this is incredible. We could do a whole conversation about kids because I think there's so much to learn through jujitsu 
and um, confidence through fitness and things you can learn, even the things that we learn, right? And um, like you said, that's a really good way to put it. Like you want them to be a good companion mate uh, because what you're doing is people are looking for characteristics in their, in their partner, right? Same sex, yeah. different sex, either way, right? Yeah. And those characteristics are things like compassion and this and that. And um, I think it's a good way to put it because you're, you're saying, what would I be looking for for someone else? And I think that's, that's, a, that's a nice way to raise them. And so you, your boys, you, you, you're, you, know, you have the three playing brothers and yep. basically you're putting out program for kids. At, at some point, I want to I talk, I mean, we can talk briefly about it now, but I do want to talk more about that because I think that training for kids is overlooked. I think that it's a nice way to start instilling work ethic and um, in a kind of a more comfortable environment um, where every day you have an opportunity kind of like success or not, not success or fail. Every day is a kind of a success of your training, but you can learn how to overcome challenges in your garage by doing physical activity. I think there's some lot of value there. Do you, do you know what imposter syndrome is? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I have my own thoughts on it. Yeah. I know. I don't, I don't really know if I know what it is. So tell me if I'm getting this right. It's when you're something, but you can't come to terms with that you're that. And so you don't see yourself as that. Is that right? So like, like I've made, I've made, I've made 10 movies, but I still don't call myself a film director. Cause I just don't see myself as a film director. And so someone might say you have imposter syndrome. They would say, embrace it. Is that what imposter syndrome is? I'm uh, sure someone will make a comment in the comments being like, you I was thinking the other way around, but yeah, I was thinking you think you're something that you're not, but anyways, yeah. I know that's the way it sounds like it would be. That's the way it sounds like it would be. I could probably Google it real quick. But so, so basically going back to this sort of Forrest Gump mentality that I told you that I have, that I just move forward. I just, and I kind of learned this. I learned this while I was interviewing Miranda. I, I've always stressed that, not stressed, but I've always had a slight little concern. How come all these people have goals in life and I don't have goals in life? And while I was interviewing Miranda, I was researching her Instagram and I saw, um, she, she was saying something about how goals, when you reach a goal, it, it, my words, not hers, that they kind of become vapid. Then what? So instead of goals, you should have good habits, good discipline and obsession or something like that. And I thought, oh shit, I really do have all three of those. I'm all, I don't know if they're good habits or good discipline, but I'm always working on them and I am obsessed. And so relative to a lot of other people. So I, I just did the program with the kids and I'm obsessed with filming. So I filmed it. I just view Instagram as a place, as a publishing platform. I've always filmed for the last 25 years, every single day. And I've always edited. And I thought, Oh shit, there's this thing called Instagram and I could publish and people will see my work. Wow. I was like stoked. I love that. Right. It's like the same way I was stoked when YouTube came around. And so I started a Patreon account, um, which didn't do, didn't do well, isn't doing well in, in terms of the metric of money. And I just had like 30 people sign up and, um, my wife's like, are you going to keep doing it? I said, yeah. She goes, why I go the discipline? I just want to put out work every single day or every other day or once a week or whatever. And I want to feel the discipline of still doing the work. She said, okay. And then after a couple months, I'm like, oh, this, I don't know if I want to do this. This is demoralizing. You know what I mean? I'm giving half the shit away for free or 90% away for free. And I can't get anyone to sign up. And, and I don't like the stress. She's like, no, keep doing it. It's good. You, you'll be happy you did. Then from there, one of the people who was on my Patreon account, um, 
a guy named Phil who works over at Sugarwad contacted me and said, Hey, we don't have any, and my, my plan for the Patreon account wasn't just kids programming. It was, I was going to do just parent podcasts. It was me all parenting stuff, just nonstop, just parenting stuff. And so this guy, Phil said, Hey, um, I work at Sugarwad and we don't have anyone who does kids programming here. Do you want to do some kids programming? I think it would do well. And I'm like, no, I don't want to be responsible for programming um, every single day. And then he just kept talking to me and needling me and, and kind of just being cool, right? And so finally he came with this idea. He goes, well, why don't you just do f- a package of 50 so you're not, and, and when you're done, we'll just post them. And it going back to that thing, to feeling like an imposter, like what do I know about training? I mean, I've been to 100 L1s. I've been surrounded by the fittest people on the planet and the people who train the best in the world for the last 15 years, but I still don't feel like, I'm an authority. I don't know shit about parenting. Like I'm, I'm just, um, I, I have this, uh, I have this thing in my bio on Instagram. I'm a parenting expert. Just ask, ask me, just ask me. And it's kind of a joke. Like I have a lot of opinions and thoughts, but I don't, I just, I just struggle to, I don't want to take on a larger identity than who I am already. Like I don't, I, maybe I'm avoiding responsibility. Who knows? Or maybe it's healthy. Maybe it's good to not you know, get on my you high have, horse. Maybe you have three kids, you've been training them and now you just want to share that with others. That's why I look at it. Right. Like you're in the trenches. You're not just talking about it. You actually have three kids and you're putting in the work and you're finding what's right. working for them. And maybe it works for somebody else. Right. So I just did it. I just did it, released it on Sugarwad just as a, um, just as a, as a practice. Have I ever told you the story about the marijuana book I wrote? You wrote a marijuana book. Yeah. Doesn't so surprise me. <laughs> so I didn't. I didn't. I didn't even smoke. Mar- I'm gonna tell you the story and I'll, and I'll tie it to sugar. What I didn't. I didn't. Um, I didn't even smoke marijuana at the time. I was 30 years old. I had long quit it. And thir- I don't know. 30. I don't remember. In my 30s. And I was at a friend's house and he had this thing called a vaporizer and that's where you yep. heat the marijuana up. It gets so hot and the smoke comes off. But and he had this big pile of marijuana on his desk and I'm like, dude, why is all this marijuana just sitting out? And he goes, I already smoked it. I'm like, really? And he goes, yeah. And he shows me the vaporizer. So I started digging through it and I find a seed. I'm like, can I have a seed? He goes, yeah, it won't grow. It's already been heated up to 250 degrees or whatever they do. I go, okay. So I plant the seed in a little pot and I put a fluorescent light on it. I must've been under 34 because I was still living at home with my mom. And I put it in the closet at my mom's house. And every day I watered it and I took a picture of it. And I had grown a ton of weed in a previous life, like five or 10 years earlier, I had rented houses and grown a ton of weed. So I knew how to do it. And every day I took a picture of it and I wrote down how much water I gave it. And I grew this marijuana plant. Then when I, when it was all done, I harvested it. I got like four ounces of weed from it and I sold it in Santa Barbara and I lived on the beach with that money for a couple months. But I took all those pictures, Jason, and all that writing and I put them in Photoshop and I made a book day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. And then I printed them all out and I glued them to pieces of cardboard and I made this huge book. How to, And I called it like how to grow, I don't remember what I originally called it, how to grow four ounces of weed in 85 days. And it just sat on my desk. It was just an art project I did, right? Just something I did. Then one day I'm reading the newspaper and it says, um, Ed Rosenthal lives in Oakland, California and is the largest publisher of marijuana books in the world or something. So I just, I looked him up and I called him and his wife answered. She's the head publisher there. And I said, hey, would you guys want to publish this book I wrote, you know, made? So I go in there, they're like, where's the book? And I hand them this big stack of cardboard with like rings in it. And they're like, no, we need, 
the computer files. I'm like, no, there's no computer files. This is the fucking book. Right. This is all I got. <laughs> right then and there, they, I signed the contract and, uh, you know, a year later the book's published and I start making a thousand dollars a month off of it from selling that book. And it's still for sale today in digital platform. And then they had me write another book. And that's kind of, that's how the three plane brothers programming is too. It's like, I, I'm just filming my kids and just doing what I do. And now someone, it's the same reason why I started my podcast up again. An affiliate owner reached out to me and said, Hey, why aren't you doing a podcast? And I said, cause I don't want to, I don't want to organize I don't want to organize podcasts. I'm too busy with my kids. He goes, well, when you had Chris Cooper on, he, I watched that podcast and my gym was suffering. I, I read a few of his books and now my gym is booming and I'm making a fucking killing. And I have, I, I want to pay it forward to you. What if I organize your entire podcast for you? And I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm thinking in my head, I don't want to do that. But it's what life is like. Knock, 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 knock. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Yeah, doors open. So I just started my pot. So yeah, so three months ago, I started up the Sevon podcast again. So that's just how I'm, that's just how I'm rolling. And, and, and the other component of that, people are like, well, how do you do that? Aren't you stressed out? You have three kids. The whole time that I worked at CrossFit, I lived on about a quarter of my income. So because I was homeless, I know I don't have any like this furniture. This is the furniture I grew up with as a kid. You know, this is like the same furniture that was my mom's house as a kid. I only have, I've only had one new car. Um, my wife and I've only bought one car our whole life. It's our, it's our minivan, you know? Um, I mean, we have a $3,500 dog, but I thought that was a, a good investment because it's our guard dog for the house. This microphone's expensive, but that's because I talk to people like Jason Kalipa, but all my shit's free. My glasses are free. My shirt's free. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like just very like, minimalistic in that sense. Right? Yeah. And just it's funny because like, like the more money you get, the more stuff you want to go buy. But then maybe for you, probably what you learned on the streets is that, you know, more stuff doesn't always lead to more happiness. That's really, dude, no. your background is, you know, I, I could really, I could dive into this. I mean, we're well, we're over an hour now, but I could dive into more of this with you. Cause I'm curious, like you talk about going to a hundred countries. We didn't even talk about getting outside the United States. You were just in Santa Barbara and you, right. you had all these unique jobs. You, you wrote a book on weed. Yeah. And, Dude, well, I, obviously people can find you on Instagram and go find your program on, on uh, Sugarwad. And uh, we should do this again. We should, talk, we should talk one time about all the like unique, like CrossFit, like behind the scenes. Because you have a lot of that footage and you see a lot oh, of stuff behind yeah. the scenes that most people haven't seen. I'd love to. Thanks for reaching out to me. Yeah, dude. Well, hey, have a great that day. I, I know the kids are in the back. Go, go do your thing, man. And we'll, uh, we'll chat again soon. Thank you.